Greetings to each one. I consider it a privilege and blessing to be here this morning. Also a very thankful heart for his loving protection upon us in the midst of the storm last night. Probably one of the worst ones that I have been in in my lifetime. One of the worst, I think, for that kind of uh, wind and Although it didn't last long, if it would have, uh, we'd have been in a lot more trouble than what we were. A lot of damage uh, just within a few miles from us, and we are grateful. Also, thank you for what we have heard already this morning, and uh, trust that God's grace will be upon us today. I have uh, a combination this morning of perhaps at least two messages that I'm going to try to sandwich together, and I think I can relieve you at the beginning that I won't keep you for two hours, but uh, as I continued to prepare, I had preached some part of this in Bolivia uh, a few weeks ago, and and it continues to build and mushroom a bit as I continue to think about this. Let us turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. The first half of my message, I want to direct it low enough that the children are able to catch some of the message. And then the last half, I'm going to switch gears a bit and speak a little bit more to us adults. Matthew chapter 7, and also a bit of chapter 8. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and the female, and the beasts that are not clean by two, the male and the female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep alive seed upon the face of all the earth. And yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. Then went in two and two under Noah under the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day, where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day, and at Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, 
the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the uh, unto Noah into the ark two and two of all flesh wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in went in male and female of all flesh as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood was forty days upon the earth and the waters increased and bare up the ark and it lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went uh, upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. And the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth. Both the fowl and of cattle and of beasts. And every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And every man. And all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. The fish were able to escape that because it was a a flood of waters. And every living substance was destroyed, which is upon the face of the ground, both men and cattle and creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. And God remembered Noah. What a blessing. God remembered Noah. And every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters of swage. So it means they gathered away. The uh, fountain also, the deep, and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters returned from off the earth continually after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. The ark rested in the seventh month of the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. The waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the earth. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he took, put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet another seven days, and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more.
And of course, uh, I don't think I'll read all the rest of the verses there, but uh, that was the sign. The covering was taken off the earth and the door was open and the animals and Noah and his family went out and uh, on the command of God to go forth of the ark and uh, to bring everything that was in the ark with him out of the ark and Noah did that and uh, and Noah then built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord liked that. He smelled the sweet savor, the Bible says. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat in summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Shall we pray? Our eternal God in heaven, we look to you once again. We marvel at the accurate account given to us of the great flood that was upon the earth over 4,000 years ago and what all happened there. We are thankful for that account that we have. We believe this record today and embrace it and know that there have been many, many evidences of it on the face of the earth that you have given us witness of these very words to have been true. And so, Father, we thank you for that and I pray that this, like all the scriptures, we would embrace with our whole heart and believe the record that God gave of the creation and of his Son and everything in between. We thank you for the instruction to righteousness also given to us by the Holy Scriptures. I pray, dear God, that your blessing would be upon these words and that you would guide the words of my mouth that they may be true and right and may inspire our hearts to live our lives to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if I have an accurate uh, title here this morning, but uh, I uh, I felt inspired to uh, talk about the flood and somewhat on the flood of judgment, and then I'd like to concentrate on these two birds at the end. One of the most aggressive and popular heresies finding its way into evangelicalism today is known as inclusivism. It is the notion that salvation is not limited to Christians. It is not limited to those who believe the Bible. It's not limited to those who know the gospel and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Inclusivism says that God will save people who do not know about the Bible. They look at them as kind of being innocent and uh, how can God do such a thing? All these innocent people who perhaps didn't know or ever heard 
that God would be such a just God, as I, my words there, as to destroy every living creature off the face of the earth like that except for eight people. They say that if they have never heard or have not known the Lord Jesus Christ, that that is a way that is way too narrow. He would never condemn all the people of the earth to hell because they did not have a Bible or because they did not hear and believe the gospel. This is what men in the evangelical church are embracing today and believing. They say there's a wideness in God's mercy. Some of you remember the song about the wideness of God's mercy. I am sure they love that song. In fact... It is even called the wilderness of mercy mercy viewed by some. And in fact, people will tell us that it is virtually deadly to effective evangelism to give unbelievers the idea that God is so narrow that God in his just judge who damns everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. I remember some time ago, we were in uh, New York City, well, it's probably a couple of years now. And uh, having a street meeting there in the park at, uh, at uh, Washington Square Park. And I remember we heard it over and over again that day. But your way is so narrow, they kept saying to us over and over again. They could not conceive that Jesus Christ is the only way to God or the only way to heaven. That is considered so radical, so extreme, so overly narrow today that when you take to the street and you begin to say that to people, they just cannot handle it. That is due to the philosophy that that has hit the educational system and the whole college and school and teachers and professors and... and, uh, Sadly, over the last 50 years that has come into the church, men begin to preach it and have made God such a loving God that there's just no way that he could do such a thing. Well, God is a just judge. And this notion is a rapidly moving notion, finding hearing throughout the evangelical world. I suppose there are many biblical answers we could give to this kind of heresy, but none of them would be as dramatic as the flood, because the flood, you have God looking at the world. And I don't know how many people were here at that time, but a lot, I believe. They were able to have large families because they lived over 900 years long, a number of them, and so they were were able to propagate for a long time, or throughout many, many years there. Even though I'm intrigued by the timeline of the flood that Adam and Noah probably knew each other nearly, or Noah could have been a little boy and at least would have known Seth. Uh, I would believe, but that's how the whole spectrum of 1,600 years unfolds in this uh, account before the flood.
In the, in the uh, account of the flood, we do have a record here that God is just and God is a just judge. And it's just good for us to view the fact that everything was so black and white that tens of thousands, maybe even millions of people lost their lives and eight people were saved. There was nothing in between. You were either in the ark or you were out of the ark. If you were out of the ark, you were lost and damned to go to hell. Not only the destruction of the water, but for all eternity, we believe. For those who accepted God's message and his invitation and believed, which was only eight people were allowed to go into the ark, God opened the door, God gave Noah instructions how to build a boat. And Noah did that over and over again in the scripture. It says here, and Noah did what he was commanded. We get the exact wording there. I think we have it three, four times in the scripture. Noah obeyed and he did what God told him. God told him he's going to do this and he's going to destroy the earth. He's going to judge the earth. He was sick and tired of their wickedness and their violence and their uh, rebellion against him. And it repented him. He was sorry that he even made mankind. Can you imagine that God had made such a beautiful earth in the Garden of Eden just 1,600 years before and all the birds and the animals and everything, the sun, moon, and the stars were created. Now God was so unhappy that he had made the earth that he decided, I'm going to go down and destroy the whole thing. And the actual planet was not destroyed, but what we consider the destruction of the world was the surface of it. And I believe that's how it will be the next time. Now, one thing that is so important for us in the, in the, uh, this account of the flood is we have a verse in, in Matthew and again in Luke and perhaps in Mark too that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the days of the coming of the Son of Man. As it was, so shall it be. So I consider it imperative for us as a church to study and understand and take a look at the matter of the flood. I'm hoping to preach maybe about three messages or more out of this, uh, these three chapters, six, seven, eight, and nine at home. And I haven't preached any of them there yet, so you get a little bit of the preliminary here. But, uh, let me just read a few quotes here again. Uh, if you believe that God has a benign attitude toward Scripture and a benign attitude toward the Gospel and a benign attitude toward believing in Jesus Christ, and it really doesn't matter whether you do or not, as long as you're sincere or religious or live up to whatever standard that is purported to you, through your own personal religion, if you believe that God is going to save those people, then you have to explain how it is that when it came to destroying the entire population of the world, by the time you get to Noah's day, 
How do you explain that God drowned them all in unrighteousness, identifying only eight out of the human race that were righteous? These same people want seem to want to get God off the hook so that God doesn't appear to be the bad guy. God doesn't appear to be the one causing all this havoc in the world, all the apparent judgment in the world, yet God himself takes complete and total responsibility for the flood. I will send. And he did it. Verse 4. I will send rain on the earth. I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. God has never wanted man to get off the hook for judgment. The Genesis flood has massive implications with regard to understanding the narrowness of the gospel. The exclusivity of salvation. I suppose we can also apply the flood to another movement today called the openness of God's movement. Now, I would like to insert here just the fact that we understand that this is the great and solemn judgment of God, and God was exactly right. There's no flaw in him in doing what he did here. But I would like to show you something very interesting is the fact that he had mercy on this creation and allowed a Noah to preach, a preacher of righteousness, to warn these people while the ark was preparing for 120 years. And so God is not a mean God to do what he did, but it just behooves us to come to the fact that once it's enough, it's enough. And God will shut the door. Just like the scripture says, Jesus said, I think it was when once the master of the house has risen up and shut to the door and you're on the outside, he says there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I think it's hard for us to come to grips with that. But for 120 years, he played with the people. And the boat was preparing. He knew that it was going to rain. God had told him it was going to rain and told him to build the boat. And he was out there carpentering and working and building this boat for 120 years. And the people came by and he was buying lumber perhaps from the sawmills of the day or or from other people preparing it for him. He didn't do all this himself. I would have guessed that he could have had a hundred or two uh, or three workers on this thing to build this thing and get it up there. And every now and then he'd lay his hammer and his saw down and he would tell them what he's doing and why he's doing it. That's what I believe happened. It's reading maybe a little bit between the lines, but I just believe because the Bible says that he was a preacher of righteousness that he did it over and over again and warned these people of it. And I think they just kind of, ah, oh, no, he's got some funny ideas, but he's paying us and so we're going to work for him, you know, and and uh, make this boat or whatever they thought. But they would not heed to the message that he had to give to the people alongside of building the ark. But the fact is that he had mercy. God had mercy upon the people for 120 years. is a long time. You could understand a little bit if he had just built the ark and never said anything to anybody. And then at the end said what was going to happen, what he's going to do. But in that 120 years, 
the rumors and the message that he was saying probably spread across the known world. That's some of my thoughts, perhaps. I think in God's mercy, that's very reasonable to think, just like he's doing today. I marvel at the translations that are going on, the biblical translations of the Bible, and the distribution of it. I, in fact, it's a work that I greatly rejoice in and can love to support and help. I just got an email last night again from Iraq that uh, pled for another 500 uh, copies of uh, the Bible in Farsi. People are begging for copies of the Bible. And uh, a church there in New Holland, uh, some of you, uh, uh, a church there, Mennonite church, just keeps giving and giving and they beg for more. And then they, they broaden the plea out to some other churches likewise. And, and uh, that email came to me yesterday again begging for another 500. But I love that kind of work. It's just the mercy of God again. In We are in the time right now of the building of, of the ark. As it was, so shall it be. And I would say the roof is on. And I don't know if the animals are in inside already. But another thing that is so interesting is I understand the calculation of the days here that God called Noah and his family into the ark and called all the animals to follow in there and he left that door open seven more days. You ever see that in there? And I think that's beautiful. We cannot blame God for being overly harsh and mean and not giving opportunity to the people to save themselves from the judgment that come if he actually, by miraculous ways, had all these animals lying up there two by two and seven by seven and so on and left them go into the ark and left all the people around there hear this thing and see this thing as they uh, gathered and then let the door open seven more days. Anybody else want to come in? There was the message of mercy to them. So for to believe in this inclusive or this uh, uh, view that God is some kind of a mean God and doesn't give people the opportunity is not the case. In fact, in Revelation, and this is my view of prophecy, I have to reveal to you a little bit that I believe an angel will fly through the midst of heaven preaching the everlasting gospel in every language, tongue, and tribe and everybody in some time here in the end will yet get to understand the gospel in the bushes of the Amazon jungle or the hinder parts of hinder parts of, uh, of Papua New Guinea or Africa or wherever it might be. It's just part of the mercy of God. The angel flying through the midst of heaven and preaching the everlasting gospel. I just love that. And I'm convinced that it will be heard in whatever language the people have. It's the mercy of God to do those kind of things. So I do not see this as unreasonable, but rather very, very reasonable. And that's the way it is today. But we have a philosophy amongst us today that a loving God just couldn't send these billions of people into hell. And they have made out that we have a God that is not the true God anymore at all. He is not just. He would let all kinds of sinners right into it along with the saints. But you and I both know that heaven wouldn't be heaven if all those wicked men come in that are claiming that they should be able to be allowed to come in. 
that wouldn't be heaven, would it? Well, he destroyed the world once, and he'll destroy it again. Now, just a little, some facts, a little bit about the flood and the historical accuracy of this story. Uh, for most of you, I'm sure, I hope all of you, and myself, we wouldn't need any other evidence than the Bible. I hope we're the kind of people that the Bible says thus and thus it was, and thus and thus it was, and that's the end of the story. But it's not that way with people in general. They want other evidence and all that, but let me show you a little bit what God has done. There's a fascinating phenomenon in the world called the Genesis account of a worldwide flood. And by the way, there are those who think it was only local. It was not a local flood because Noah would have had 120 years to get out of the area where the flood was going to be and he wouldn't have had to build a boat. But it was a worldwide flood, not a local flood like these modernists are trying to say. And uh, it is something you might not know or even think about, but there is proof of a worldwide flood that is really widespread. The Somo Kubo tribe of Padua, New Guinea, the Athapascan Indians on America's west coast, the Papa Papago Indians of Arizona, the Algonquin Indians of Northeast United States, the Brazilian tribes, a number of them, the original people of Cuba, the Mexicans, the natives of Alaska, the Hottentots, the Greenlanders, natives of Hawaii. They have a flood story with a main character, and some of them name that character Nu'u. The Welsh, the Lithuanians, the flood tradition exists in the history of India, China, and Egypt. That's only a sampling of what they consider 270 different people groups that have a flood story in their tradition. Now, I think there's a man, I don't know the man's name, maybe I have it here somewhere, in the 1800s that got all this information together. 270 accounts that have come down 4,400 years and Somehow this thing was so big and so catastrophic that it was worthy to be given from father to son to grandson and on down for 4,400 years that today we still have a character by the name of Nu uh, that uh, uh, was the main character of the flood. Let me tell you some other things about this. 88% of them say that there was in the midst of a flood a, fam a favored family that was spared. 70% say survival was by means of a boat. 95% say the sole cause of this great catas uh, catastrophe that came on the whole world was a flood. And that is to say it was a flood and nothing else. 
66% of these traditions say that it became because of man's wickedness. Interesting. 67% of these tradition flood stories say that animals also were saved. 57% of the stories say the survivors ended up on a mountain. Interesting. Many of them use some form of Noah's name, like the Hawaiian legend is, I think, the Nu'u. Many of them speak about birds being sent out. Many of the, uh, them speak about a rainbow at the end. Many of them say that eight people were saved. Interesting, isn't it? So you have, from all over the planet, very diverse accounts with common elements of truth. Shouldn't surprise us, should it? Those of us who know and believe the Bible, because it is clear that all of these accounts, even though they get garbled by the varying traditions, have one common source. There really was a flood. There really was a flood. Do you believe in the biblical account of the flood? And a worldwide flood. These stories come from a common source because all humanity comes from a common family. They are all direct descendants out of Noah and his three boys. And so it doesn't matter the red and yellow, black and white. It doesn't matter what kind of features they have and don't have. They all come from Noah and his three sons. Therefore, they all have a direct connection to a flood and a flood story and a flood tradition. Hugh Miller was the investigator back in the 1800s who wrote, and he's quoted here as saying, the destruction of well nigh the whole human race in an early age of the world's history by a great deluge appears to have so impressed the minds of a few survivors that seems to have been handed down to their children in consequence with such terror struck impressiveness that their remote descendants of the present day have not even yet forgotten it. It appears in also every mythology and, their, um, and uh, in the most distant countries and among the most barbarous tribes, this story and this tradition still exists. The flood did happen. And it did create essentially a story that was passed down from the first family and has woven its way through all of human history. Now, let me just go through a few of these things here. Like I said, there was 120 years of grace. But there came a time when the time was up. And God said, I'm going to send it rain. He got everybody in the boat that belonged in there, including all the animals, and it began to rain. God had shut the door to the ark and sealed it up there on the side where the animals went in, and it began to rain. It had never rained before. That was perhaps some of the reasons that 
people didn't believe the fact that it was going to rain. But I'd just like to remind you of the same fact concerning the next destruction that is just around the corner, that it's going to rain fire and brimstone. Now, we know the story about Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction that came upon it, but we have never seen it rain fire. We have never seen it rain um, hailstones that, that weigh about 120 pounds, about a talent. The Bible says, and the estimate that I have heard is about 120 pounds that they would weigh. If it would have rained hailstones like that last night, you know good and well that none of the roofs around here are made to withstand a 120-pound hailstone falling out of heaven. No way. They'd go probably stop in the basement on the concrete. So it began to rain... And I believe that people repented and they, they uh, would have loved to get that door back open again, just like the, the virgins who, who didn't have oil in their lamps and probably knocked on the side of that boat many a time. But it was too late. The door was shut. And the water kept rising and they clamored for the highest mountains and the water kept coming up and up and up. And as they kept You know, some of the pictures I've seen left a tremendous impression on me as a young boy when I saw women that were holding on to a rock and trying to pull a child up a little higher with the other arm and try to get him to higher ground. But eventually the waters rose. For 40 days and 40 nights it rained. And 15 cubits above the highest mountain, that would have been about 22, 23 feet according to our calculations there. A cubit being about, from the elbow to the tip of the finger, about 18 inches. And every man alive on the face of the earth, women and children, die. You talk about innocency of children. You know, you look at the situation around the world, children always suffer because of the ignorance of their parents and the lack of preparation. It behooves us as fathers and mothers that if we don't want our children ever to suffer in the destruction that is to come, that we give them the proper instruction as soon as they're able to comprehend it on the way to God, the way to heaven, and how to escape the wrath to come that is prophesied to come upon this earth. There really was a flood. There really was. Well, there are so many things here in this chapter, and I probably do not have the time to go through a lot of it that I would like to, but uh, I just wanted to say concerning the clean beasts, the fact that they were taken in by sevens, and one of the reasons for that was that Noah had a great offer to offer uh, an offering to make when it was all over, and he couldn't kill. Uh, the two, male and female, they wouldn't have existed. But I'm impressed with the amount of times that it's mentioned the male and female went into the ark. I mean, that's a message in itself for our day, isn't it? That the creation of God, even in the animal kingdom, mankind and all, is male and female. He didn't take two male elephants in. He didn't take two bulls in. He took a bull and a cow and an elephant male and a female. And the reason for that was because that is the only way reproduction takes place. 
on the face of the earth and in the animal and man kingdom and everyone, everything. God has designed it that way. And so we see all these things that took place here and the beautiful and accurate biblical account of this whole thing. Well, after a time, and I'd like to explain just a little bit about the rain, it is assumed, at least from what little we know, that there was a canopy of water upon over the earth, and it was tropical the world over, and a mist went out and watered all the plants at night, and uh, that's the way the people lived before the flood. And I understand that all that water that's up there is not there anymore, but that probably came in the form of rain. There is no way that any kind of clouds that we have today would hold enough of water to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But we also have the fact that the great fountains of the deep opened up, and that is of great interest to me. I have, through the years, toured some caverns and caves. And I remember I was in one in Missouri, where it's the Jesse James Cavern, where... Jesse James and his outlaw gang, they used to rob trains and, and uh, of gold and, and stagecoaches and whatever they could find for a number of years. And they had a way to get into this cave and just dip through a little river uh, running very low. I remember uh, seeing it and on the other side there was a nice big cave room again and they would stash their stuff in there. And then they had an underground Way a number of quite a distance out, maybe a mile or so down, and the posse and the sheriffs would stand at the gate uh, where they went in and were following them, you know, and they were just disappearing there. And so they said, "Okay, we're going to wait them out," you know. And they stayed there for many times, but they had escaped to another underground river. But when we threw that cave, the guide said. Many, many years ago, and probably said millions of years ago, there was an underground river that went out, and it went out that way. They could tell the direction by the carvings of the rock and all, which way the water had gone out. Well, I just chalked that up to my understanding. Of course, there were underground rivers, and underground they are empty today, except for a little water laying here and there, and kind of a little pond or there along the rocks where Jesse James, you know, dove under and came up in another big empty cavern. And it had all the lines, you know, of water being in there years ago, but it wasn't there anymore. Where did it go? Well, the Bible teaches us that the great fountains of the deep opened up. And I think the caves and caverns of today were at one time all full of water, came out under high pressure in the flood and made the carvings of the rock from that. And the water never went back down there. The, the, the water, the Bible says, was assuaged at the end of the flood. And a long wind came and the water gathered. Well, it's my understanding, my belief, that it's still, water doesn't go to nothing, that it's in the North and South Pole or Greenland or places like that. The scientists are so worried about global warming because they're afraid of anything would melt these great <coughs> ice fields in the north and in the south, that the ocean would rise and would flood a lot of the coastal area. In fact, they have maps today that show the United States if that would happen and where the 
and you know the lowlands of New Jersey and Delaware and Maryland and the eastern shore would all be underwater. And uh, I believe that's where the water is, That some of it that uh, was in the flood. Well, so much for that. All right, in chapter 8, let us go on to the next part of the chapter. And God remembered Noah. I just love that word. If you are an obedient child of God today, you will never be forgotten of God. Don't worry about it. You will not be forgotten. You think, well, sometime it's possible that I'll be left behind, you know. And uh, But if you are obedient, you walk by faith and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and have accepted Him as your Lord and Savior and the atonement that was made for you by the blood of Jesus Christ, God will never forget you. What a consolation that is. And every living thing and all the cattle that was with Him in the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountain also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually and after the end of the 150 days the waters were abated. The ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. The waters decreased continually until the 10th month and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the mountains of the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to, force at the, uh, came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the windows of the ark which he had made. Now here it gets very interesting. <clears throat> this came to me here some time ago as I was meditating upon the scripture. And I just saw some things here that I had never seen before in my fifty plus years of being a Christian. Now the flood was over, the rain had stopped, the fountains of the deep weren't going. And Noah decided to open up his window of the ark. And he had all kinds of birds, but he chose, he chose a raven. And he left the raven go out that window. Now you know what ravens are like. Maybe I don't know if we have a specific bird that we call a raven today. I think they do in various countries. But here in America, we would tend to, the similar birds would be a turkey buzzard or those big ugly black crows that are constantly flying down on the highways and eating the dead raccoons and the bunnies and the deer and what have you that are rotting by the side of the road or right on the road. And it just happens all the time. You come along in your car and they're there eating out ahead and they have to fly away and then they... You go past and they come back and God has made the raven for a good purpose and that is to be a scavenger bird. They are ugly. When I was at the Creation uh, Museum, um, Brian, uh, they had a buzzard there, a big buzzard and a fellow there giving a, le- a lecture on it and i never forget some of the things he said about that ugly bird. It was the ugliest bird you ever seen because we never get to him that close. But he had him trained that he had him sitting on a stand, I think, right beside him. And they looked awful, I have to say. I don't think anybody ever desires to have buzzards for pets. But anyway, so we have the raven, a black, ugly bird that 
feeds on dead animals. And Noah let that bird go out the window. Well, the interesting thing about it is that it tells, tells us the nature. It is at least my perception that that raven flew around outside there and he was well at home. There was dead carcasses floating around all over the place of man and beast and he could just go and feed himself until he was satisfied all day long and he didn't need the ark anymore. He was at home. He had plenty to eat and he was just doing fine. And he never came home. Well, after he didn't come back, he waited seven more days and then he left another dove, another bird out. Very, very different. A dove. And as he left that dove out, you know, it flew around likewise, I believe, a little like doves do and a little like the raven maybe had done, but it wasn't at home on the dead carcasses, the rotting carcasses of flesh floating around in the water at all. And he didn't know where to land and he didn't know where to put it. You know, they are a clean animal. The Bible allowed doves to be used to offer for sacrifices through the old law. And so here the dove, he flew around there all day and he came home again that evening. He had nowhere to set his foot. He was not going to set his foot on the rotting carcasses of man and beast that were floating around in the earth at that time. And so Noah reached out his hand and brought him in again, and he waited seven more days. The waters in the meantime, the wind was blowing, and the waters were gathering away. Then he left him out again. Well, this time, the bird flew around again, and sure enough, he found a little olive leaf with a green leaf on it that had started to grow, that was sticking out above the, above the water, and had started greening up, and he plucked that thing off, but he still didn't have any home. He didn't have a place to set his foot. There was too much rotten carcasses probably floating all around the place. And he went back home. Now history or science would tell us that there are some interesting things about that. A dove is very, very concerned about feeding its young or feeding its mate. They tell me that a dove would actually take a twig like that or a leaf like that and take it to its mate. They are very, very loyal birds. And uh, and that's very interesting to us, you know. And the fact is they will actually chew up that leaf sometimes and then regurgitate it and give it to their mates or to their young at times. Well, that's what I think that the dove was all about. They went around there, you know, and uh, couldn't find a place to set its foot in a nice clean area. And therefore went back the second time with that olive leaf in its beak. Well, Noah waited seven more days and then he left it out again. And this time he didn't come back. Meaning that the waters had abated to the point and the, perhaps the sun was shining and the flesh was, uh, was rotten and had sunk to the ground and I don't know how long the terrible turbulence took place underneath that water like is evident all over the earth that there was such incredible uh, uh, turbulence I'm sure you've seen the layers of all kinds of different rocks and it shows that there was just catastrophic currents going underneath there that buried a lot of that and of course they're finding 
and, and the North and South Pole were freezing and they're finding all these things. Thousands of mammals have been found in Siberia and in other places that are buried underneath the ice. When they excavate them, there they are. And they still have green grass in their stomachs and in their mouth because that froze immediately when the flood started. It seemed like, and they were buried in the turbulence and in the freezing in the ice there. Quick frozen. Therefore, they were preserved. But anyway, that dove came back no more then. And Noah then knew, if a dove doesn't come back, um, everything's okay. And he was able to open the ark. And God told him, now it's time to leave and go. And he took them all with him and they went out, made the altar. The rainbow appeared. A promise came from God that it would never, never happen again. Now, I want to challenge us this morning about these two birds. You'll notice that there's a vast difference between them. And yet, they stand for something. It is a lesson to us this morning. Do you have the spirit of a raven or the spirit of a dove? If you'd hear the cry of a raven, it probably gives you chills at night. They have such a rough voice, you know, and you hear this raven uh making it sound like they do, and that's all the creation of God and all that, but we don't like to hear ravens. But the fact is, how are we? Are we going about outside in this world as we know it and going and feeding upon the rotten things of this world? Here we are supposing you're being born-again Christians sanctified by the Spirit of God, born again and changed by His power, yet we go and eat off of the rotten carcasses of our time and our day and our world in which we live in. God help us. God help us. Do you have the spirit of a raven this morning? Do I have the spirit of a raven? Do I make rough noises? Do I make uh, loud, rough noises that grate upon people's nerves and grate upon their ears when they hear us and Those are the kind of challenges we need to look at at the spirit and practice and life of a raven. But I'm especially interested in what he eats. And I I should expand the message here and you'll know why I'm condensing it. When I, uh, Brother Leonard did a tremendous job at the leadership seminar on uh, Friday morning as he preached on the moral conditions or the moral situations of our people, our churches, our world today. And if there ever was a message that would apply directly, that entire message, to the spirit of a raven in the life of the people, and the men are falling thereby by eating off of the rotten carcasses of this world. And what it's doing to them. And to their children. And to their dear wives. Many times. And it's both ways. There are also sisters or women who are also doing these kind of things in one way or another. But now let us look at the nature of a dove. And we have something totally different. Here we have a picture of the Holy Spirit. When... Jesus was baptized in uh, Matthew chapter 3. A dove came down upon the head 
of, uh, of uh, the Lord Jesus when he was baptized there and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, hear ye him. The story is given out in Belleville, Pennsylvania years ago when it was just the old Amish church there that they had a lot of trouble. If you've ever studied the history of Belleville, maybe Mark knows it pretty good or Sister Barb, they could tell you some of the history. But it's not a good history. There was so much inner turmoil and fighting within the church and within uh, the settlement there that uh, I think people virtually despaired of coming to church. I forget how bad it was. I'd have to restudy and reread some of that. And they asked for help for ministers to come in from, I think it was Ohio. Uh, Ohio or maybe Iowa at that time to try to speak peaceably to the people and make peace. And the story is given there that a man stood there in that church and preached this peace to them. And a dove actually came flying in the window. It was the summertime, landed on the shoulder of the preacher and then took off again and left. That is the nature of a dove. A dove, it stands for peace. You know, it just grieves my heart that the charismatic has so borrowed from this dove. And everywhere they have, they have in their churches and on their screens, if the screen's not being used, they have this big white dove. I just was listening to a preacher who was not from there, but he preached in one of those churches. They allowed him to preach. And they had these big doves on the screens beside him preaching. And it's locally here in Lancaster County that way. The dove is on the end of the church and on the wall. And and there's just, they do a lot with this white dove. But we had a family move in to charity years ago from Florida who went to a large church down in, seems to me it might have been Fort Lauderdale or somewhere. And I forget, I was very familiar with the church and the, uh, the preacher there. And, the story was that at the end of the service that there was so much fighting and shouting and yelling and going on in the parking lot if a car went ahead of you and got out before you did as the people rushed to go out to eat or to go home or whatever that the people were angry and fussed and fumed at each other as they left the parking lot. That was the man's testimony and he went there for quite a time. The spirit and nature of a dove. You know a dove will never hurt another bird, not even a little bird. It will never go up and start pecking at a little bird of some kind that's smaller than him. No, not a dove. They'll never do it. Never do it. The Bible says that we're to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It is one of the most beautiful pictures of the life of the Lord Jesus. Who did he hurt? While he was here, he didn't hurt a soul, did he? Even though he spoke, spoke strongly to mean men like the Pharisees and so on, who deserved it and all that, so he was not just a pushover. But as far as him going up to an individual, the Bible even says that a bruised, reek, uh, a bruised reed will he not break, and smoking flax will he not quench. That was the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Noah left go and, and, and left that great contrast. Now some would say, and I 
hesitated whether I should mention this, that some would say, well, this is the old man and the new man or the dual nature that is within man. But I don't borrow that in a great way, even though there's a seed of truth about that. All of us are in the flesh, and if we're in the flesh, we whack like ravens sometimes. But if we are led by the Spirit of God and transformed by His Spirit and by His power, then we'll have the nature of a dove. The Bible says we are given a divine nature. And that's the emphasis that I would like to have. The next one is the fact, as I mentioned already, that a dove is loyal. A dove is loyal to its partner. A dove will not drop its partner or its uh, its uh, pair. Doves go in pairs. And they live in pairs a lot. But they stay loyal to each other. I would expect for life as best as I'm able to know. Maybe some of you have a better uh, a better understanding or more information than I do. But I would consider a male dove will never leave his female once they pair up. And there are many other animals that are that way too that are loyal. But as I understand, they're loyal. The next, the third point is the fact that they feed their young. They do not abandon their young. They do not abort them. They don't pick through their eggs because they don't want the responsibility of a little one and kill that little unborn little doveling that is uh, maturing inside the shell of the egg. They feed and take care of their young. The other thing is they're a clean bird. Like I said, they will not set their foot on the rotting carcasses that are floating around in the wicked and ungodly world out there, you know, which is a type of that. They will not set their foot there. They will come back to the ark and rather live in that ark than to go out and set their feet on the rotten carcasses of this world and feed off of that. What are we feeding on? The law also declared them clean and they were used to sanctify altars. They were used to... uh uh, to atone, their their neck was wrung off and the blood was spilled on the altar to atone for the sins of the people if they were poor. If they couldn't afford a lamb, they could go buy a turtle dove or a dove, you know, for just a few pennies, so to speak. Bring that to the priest and the priest would offer the dove upon the altar. Next one. A dove coos softly. Doesn't bother us much, does it? Not at all. You just hear the cooing of a dove. And I remember back home on the farm when I was raised there, we didn't have tractors. And so you could hear these birds, you know, whether they were the red-winged blackbird in the spring when you were plowing or whatever, you could hear the birds. And uh, a little different today in the modern machinery that most people have. But I always, they never bothered me. They, They were just... A nice thing. And we also had doves. We raised pigeons and sold them. And uh, and it was a blessing. They cooed softly. But some would say that they make a mournful sound. They make a mournful sound. Well, isn't that interesting? Didn't Solomon, the wise men, say it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of laughter? So the morning sound might be good for us, even though it should not make us of a melancholy spirit and not be joyful. But the fact is, it's better to be mournful 
as James chapter 4 says, than to dwell in the house of mirth and the house of laughter and hoopla, and uh, which a lot of Christians would never, never understand and never accept that concept today. The other thing is, there's a dove or a pigeon out there they call a homing pigeon. Interesting little bird in a dove. You can take that dove anywhere. You can blindfold it. You can put it in a cage. You can put it in the trunk of your car. And you can take it a thousand miles down the road and let it out. And it has a call toward home. It knows which direction home is. Do we know which direction home is today? Do we have a sense of direction? No matter who gets us, kidnaps us, takes us into prison or whatever. Paul and Silas sang about home. They knew where home was in the midst of that prison. And that's the question about us. Do we have that homing instinct toward heaven, toward our Heavenly Father who created us? Another thing about doves, they gather in groups. I remember so well how they used to be on the roofs of barns or on the silo tops. As I grew up, we would go in there nights and go up in, they were inside some of these silos that had an open roof uh, at one area where the silage used to be put in and farmers wouldn't bother closing that. And they would go inside there and we'd go in there by night and kind of blind them with a flashlight and then catch them and sell them and get a few dollars. They like to gather in groups. Interesting. Interesting. Take note. They're not independents. They're not individualistic. They don't go off even as a pair and want to be all by themselves all the time. No, no, no. Not a dove. They love to be in groups and you might see 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 of them in a group. Very interesting. They gather in groups. And they are a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Fifty times in Scripture, a dove is mentioned. And I don't have time to talk much about it, but the Song of Solomon talks about the eyes of a dove and all this. And it is a picture of warmth and love and gentleness and all that. And that's the characteristic, that's the nature of a dove. And my last one, I already did mention here, but I think it's good to make a specific one. They are the most gentle bird. Once again, going back to New York City and Washington Square Park, there the doves are always around there, like they are in most parks. I was down in Miami the other day and missed my plane to Bolivia due to a storm in Philadelphia, and so I had to stay 24 hours. So the next I slept out the next morning in the motel, And then I took a train down to the city of Miami, and sure enough, I sat in a beautiful warm park there, about 74 degrees, and who comes to meet me but a dove? Just comes up, you know, like they do. But in Washington Square Park, there's a man who fed the doves for a long time, apparently, and he always took these breadcrumbs or whatever along, and he fed these doves. He had doves on his shoulders, on the top of his head. He had them all over his lap when he sat there. He was literally covered with doves. They loved him because he fed them. That's the nature of a dove. Very gentle. Just a light little coo. Compared to the rough cry of a raven, it's just no comparison. 
And may we take lessons from these birds this morning. I don't believe Noah just picked any old bird and said, will you go or anything like that. He knew what he was doing. He was depicting the two natures of man. The nature of a raven. And man can very quickly act like a raven in his carnal nature. Or he can have the spirit characteristic of a dove. And have the evidence of the Spirit of God upon his life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith. There again is the evidence of the Spirit of God living in our hearts. Transforming the raven spirit into the spirit of a dove. Isn't that wonderful? That God would be so merciful to us and so gracious that he would take that old raven spirit away. And give us the spirit of a dove. Let me close by just reading Ephesians chapter 4. If so be that ye have heard him, verse 21, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, and neither give place to the devil. I think that's as far as I'm going to read at this time. Do you have Do you act? Do you behave like a raven or like a dove? May God help us this day to adjust our lives according to what God has taught us here in Genesis chapter 7 and 8. Thank you.